Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Good morning. We're starting a brand new series. You already know about that. It's called, can you say it with me? Dealing with difficult people. Now, we have pictures of, uh, actually, she was just leading us in the time of worship, you know, part of our church family. And I found it interesting that the media team found the least difficult person in the church to represent the most difficult people in the church. It's so funny in our and everything else. This is a series that's part of the Jesus Project. It's a year-long series in the book of Luke. And we're going to look at these encounters that Jesus had with difficult people. We all have them. We all have them. But I, I thought to start a series like this is important to set the tone right. Because we could go into a series like this and think, man, I wish so-and-so was here, (laughs) or I hope you're listening right now, and it doesn't actually help us grow. And I want to really encourage you to set the tone like Jesus does. In Luke chapter 6, verse 42, he says these words. He says, how can you think of saying, friend, let me help help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own? Hypocrite, which in the Greek means actor or pretender, First, get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Jesus spoke these words because he knew we had a tendency to to look at other people's problems and not not just maybe how we could be a part of that problem, right? So with Pastor Keith and I, we kind of crafted a declaration. I thought we'd start our teaching time with it and we'll end with it today. It's a simple declaration and I would like you, whether you're online or in this room, that you would say it out loud with me and own it, because I think it's true of all of us. Here's the declaration. Were you ready to say it out loud with me? Let's say it together. I, too, can be a difficult person and am part of an imperfect community. Help me grow so that I deal with the difficult people in my life in a way that Jesus is most glorified. That's pretty good, eh? I mean... I think we should say that a second time, actually, because I think it's really good for us to find ourselves in this, because it takes a ton of weight off you, but it also allows us to explore the truth we're going to see in page 42 of your Jesus Project book, or Luke chapter 5 today, starting in verse 17. Let's say this again together. I, too, can be a difficult person and am part of an imperfect community. Help me grow so that I deal with the difficult people in my life in a way that Jesus is most glorified. Now, this is so important. Some of us have trouble forgiving people because we don't understand how much God has forgiven us of. Some of us have really, we have trouble being patient with difficult people in our life because we have drastically underestimated the amount of patience that God has spent towards us. Some of us find it very difficult to love difficult people because we haven't firstly saw ourselves as having been a difficult person. But the Bible would say, friend, you may be wrong there. 
In fact, I like how the Apostle Paul says it. He says this, since our friendship with God was restored, previously it was broken, restored by the death of Jesus. He purchased that friendship back that we could find a way to him. But listen to this, while we were still his enemies, while we were still difficult people, Christ died for us. So friends, uh, there's a real sense that we need to understand going in the series. There are no perfect people. We've all been difficult people. And friends, I got newsflash for you. You may be difficult again in the future <laughs> because we all are, we're imperfect people. And that allows some grace to go as well as truth to stick. So I want both, that we have grace for people as well as truth to stick for us. So with that in mind, let's talk about dealing with difficult confrontational people. So page 42 in your Jesus Project book, uh, Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. And as, as, we, as you're turning there and as you're looking for it, uh, the, the staff helped me put together this. I'm calling it a confrontational continuum. You, you individually, you land somewhere on this continuum. There are some people in this room that you embrace confrontation, and I don't mean in an, even in an unhealthy way. You're just comfortable with confrontation. You're comfortable with it. You're ready to engage in that. Other people, and I did a little unscientific but just relational poll this last week with some people I work with and other people, and most of them ended up on this end of the spectrum where, where they, they feel more comfortable avoiding confrontation. Here's what I want you to understand a little bit about this. Where you sit on this continuum is largely make, made up of your culture, your personality, and your experience. And the further you out, are out on the edges, the less healthy it is actually on the confrontational continuum. The first thing you need to realize is that your culture shapes you. That shouldn't be a surprise to any of us. We have over 70 nationalities in this church. In fact, Erin uh, Meyer, and she actually spoke at our Global Leadership Summit two years ago. In her book, she researched cultures in the world to talk about, because now we're a global uh, world, right? A global, with globalization, cultures are working together all the more. So how do we connect? How do we do work together? How do we communicate well? Because cultures are very nuanced, aren't they? So... She determined, and there's a whole chapter dedicated to how cultures do confrontation. And in fact, I, I put the graph up on the screen here. This is where some of the global cultures came when it came to a confrontational score where they landed. So you'll notice that there's a top and bottom to this graph. On the top part are nations or cultures that are more emotive. They're, they're in touch with their emotions and they, do, they, they are not nervous of emotions. So they engage in emotions right from Israel to the Philippines at the other end. Uh, more emotional cultures, the one below the line, they're less expressive emotively. It doesn't mean they don't have emotions, they just don't express them as readily. And then you'll notice on the left side of the graph are cultures that actually deal, they feel comfortable with confrontation. They feel comfortable with it. But you'll notice a difference. Like if, if you're German, you may have a comfort in, in, in confrontation, but it's not going to be very emotional. It could sound calculated. <laughs> but if you're from Israel, it's a highly emotive, highly confrontational country. So there's emotions and confrontation go together there. On the other side of the graph, you'll notice nations that are less confrontational. And so you'll see in the top right-hand corner any emotive nation like the Philippines. They're in touch with their emotions, but confrontation is not something that they enjoy. And in Japan, uh, they don't enjoy 
overt confrontation, nor do they express emotion around it. Now, again, you probably know some exceptions to the rule. <laughs> you may know some people and you go, listen, I know my culture and I can tell you, I know someone. Of course, there's always outliers. But generally speaking, the data speaks this way. Someone asked me last night, where's Canada in this? Yeah, oh yeah, where's Canada? Well, we actually registered, and it was so close to the U.S. that it, it didn't move us. We were a little less emotional and a little less confrontational than the U.S., but we were near the same quadrant. A lot of countries where a lot of different cultures gather start to orientate into that area. So we were so like the U.S., they, they, they didn't even put us on the graph, which I, which I should have had our media team just put us on the graph because we're important too, right? Here's the thing. With cultures, all of these cultures, it's a bit of your wiring. It's the way we process things. It's not wrong. It's just different. And understanding where you stand culturally in terms of confrontation, here's what it would say, and the data said there. If you were an Israeli, maybe highly confrontational and highly emotive all at the same time, it just means really you're, you're, you feel confrontation is helpful, healthy, and necessary. But if you're on the low confrontational side of that scale culturally, you think confrontation is aggressive and rude and disrespectful. And it doesn't mean that confrontation doesn't happen on this side. It just means that when it happens, it's usually less emotional and certainly not aggressive. It's nuanced. So you can understand, when you put cultures together, we could have, yeah, right? But it's not just cultures that put us on this continuum. Your personality determines where you sit, too. So Dr. David Ng, he's a psychiatrist that goes to our church here. He gave me some research this week, and I found it fascinating. He, he showed, in the research, it showed, in terms of personality, where we land on that continuum, that 10 to 15% of the population... I just got to find it in my notes here. 10, 10 to 15%... Oh, here it is. 10 to 15%, if not more of the population have a high conflict personality style. That's a lot. So 10 to 15%, let's say there's about 2,000 people that attend or participate in gatherings on a weekend here at One Church TO. That means about 300 out of you are locked and loaded for a confrontation. Because it's 10 to 15% or more high conflict personality styles. And in that is some disorders that come with that. That's why if you're on this end of the continuum, the world can feel like a very dangerous place. Now, equally in the research, there's about 10% or just under of the general population that engage in conflict avoidance personalities. So it's not that they don't like conflict or it's that they, don't, they won't engage in it. They avoid at all costs. And again, some of the disorders that speak into that. So you can understand that not just culturally is it, are we adverse, but also even personality-wise. And here's what happens when it comes to personality. We have a tendency. Have you ever noticed humans have a tendency to judge each other? Other people, not us, right? But, but if you're at this end of the continuum and you feel comfortable with confrontation and you are in relationship with someone who is less comfortable with confrontation, you could characterize them, if you're not careful, as being weak and even unchristian because they don't appear to want to resolve issues in your estimation, right? If you're at this end of the continuum and you have people that are more confrontational in your life, you could characterize them as being bullies and unchristian. Notice the pattern? 
because of the way that you see their aggression as being toxic or something. So on that continuum, our personality speaks into where we sit. Now, the, the truth is, too, you could be uh, uh, fragile and, and weak, or you could be a bully. I know this, that where you stand on this continuum, you're not good at discerning where you stand. How do I know that? Luke 6.42. Jesus said it over and over. You're going to be better at determining where other people are than you are going to be determining where you are. That's the gift and beauty of community. Community helps us to see where we stand. Because we can see through people how they experience us. So community censors us at times and it's a very healthy thing. It corrects us at times and it heals us and it encourages us at times. That's why in the Bible, community is so valued that you'll notice over and over that unity is always prioritized over productivity. It's not even how effective you are as a family unit or anything if unity is not there. So, and, and also, you notice in Scripture that Scripture corrects disruptive people and encourages disheartening people. What is it trying to do? It's trying to create a safe space, no matter where you are in this continuum, to belong. That someone that's more confrontational, naturally and more comfortably, can feel safe. That they're not going to be judged the whole time for being that. And someone that is more on the avoidance side can feel that it's a safe space. Community is so important. And guarding it is so critical. It's a gift that you and I have. So, your culture, your personality, and the last thing is your experience. Your experience shapes you. You know that. Uh, and our workplace experiences can shape us. Here, here's what I've noticed over the years. Uh, if you're a part of an industry, and some of you are, I pray for a lot of you a lot of the week because I know you're in an industry that is highly aggressive. And it's a dog-eat-dog world. It's what have you done for me lately. You better look out for yourself, right? Anyone know, everyone been a part of the, an industry like that? And here's what happens in an industry like that. You get a reward it for being aggressive. You get rewarded for it. Here's what happens though sometimes. Is sometimes we take what we get rewarded for in that aggressive nature and we bring it into our family relationships or our friendships. And, and here's the problem. That's why some people look at it and they think, what happened? Why is mommy angry all the time? Or why is my spouse trying to control me? And you confront them, and they're like, I'm not angry. I'm not controlling. But they're experiencing your aggression like it is anger. They're experiencing it like it is control. Here's the interesting thing. Aggression in an intimate relationship doesn't bear good fruit. Aggression in an intimate relationship. And so that tool that works for you at work is actually disintegrating a marriage or disintegrating trust with a child, or something like that, because uh, that aggression just wants to get things dealt with and move on. So there's even an aggressive way in trying to resolve things, or whatever it might be. But, but we've been shaped by the workplace. And we need to be careful not to characterize people like that as being bad, or to, and we have to be careful with this end. We, we have to be gentle. We have to be careful how we do things. So, so that can be another thing. You know, another thing, experiences that shape where we're on this continuum is every one of us have experienced moments where we've been wounded. And so where you sit can change according to who you're talking to or what you're dealing with. So if a man hurt you 
and you've not forgiven and not been healed from that, every time a man kind of sounds like that man, all men are the... Why was there a large contingent of female voices right there? <laughs> I heard it. I heard it. It gets even more serious. Sometimes we had a bad experience with someone of a particular race even. And then we begin to characterize everyone in that race as being the... We call that racism or sexism. A lot of the brokenness in our world comes from either ignorance or woundedness. So in, even in a marriage, I have friends, I feel for couples sometimes because they have not done the hard work of forgiving each other. And so on this confrontational continuum, they find themselves at opposite ends and they find themselves engaged in a deep, dark, troubled conflict. Sometimes it lasts for years. Here's the thing. Where do you think Jesus stood on this continuum? We already established what culture he's from, right? Jesus culturally is where? He's up here. He's highly confrontational and emotive. It's an emotional, confrontational culture. And you know what? He's comfortable with that. But what's so confounding about Jesus is his personality, though. You would expect to be aggressive then and... But his personality is described as being gentle, meek, and mild. Well, how, how would a gentle... Normally, we think of gentle, meek, and mild as weaker. How did he survive in this? You're going to see in a minute. And his upbringing, his family of origin that shapes him, just like it shapes all of us, it was humble in nature. So if you're there in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, let's pick up the teaching. Jesus is teaching... He's, he's uh, in a place where um, the Pharisees have gathered. In fact, let's read the text. It'll say it right here. Some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in Galilee, in Judea, as well as in Jerusalem. So Jesus is there, and he's teaching. And the Pharisees haven't shown up to learn from Jesus uh, they've shown up to confront him. Uh, this is an interesting thing, this rhythm between the, conf uh, the confrontation between Jesus and, and the Pharisees. See, Jesus is comfortable with confrontation. He confronted his family in the Gospels, the Sadducees, the political leaders, and this group called the Pharisees. Now, who are they? Who are these people? Now, later in our series, Pastor Keith is going to unpack with more detail who the Pharisees were. But suffice to say, it's easy to understand them more as a protest group. That's what they were. They were a protest group. A little bit like we see in Canada right now, we'll see uh, the Wet'suwet'en Nation uh, protesting the building of the pipeline. Uh, and we're part of a democracy, and a democracy allows for peaceful protest. Now, I'm not making a judgment on this or not. I'm just trying to illustrate what the Pharisees were about. The Pharisees were a pressure group or a protest group. They didn't call themselves Pharisees. That was the name people gave them. It comes from a Hebrew word, which means separate ones. Here, here's what they were pressuring and protesting about. And this is why they came into conflict so badly with Jesus. They, they thought in their minds that if people in Israel would just honor the Torah, which was the law, the first five books of the Bible, if they would just follow that and honor God, that God would come back, put his favor on the land, and free them from Roman oppression. 
And they were very zealous about this. They believed this with all their hearts, that that's what it took. And that's why, if you've ever met protesters that are very zealous about something because they very much believe it, they'll employ what means they have at their disposal. So the Pharisees shamed people. They were aggressive with people. And in the end, they're even open to dealing with Jesus' life and taking his life because they believe this so deeply that this pressure group or this protest group, these Pharisees. So in Luke chapter five, we see their first conflict with Jesus, their first interaction. So Jesus is teaching. They come from all over the place, all over Judea, and they land there. And what happens is there's this group of guys who have a friend who's paralyzed and they go and they can't get into the room where Jesus is teaching. So they take him to the roof, tear apart the roof and lower the paralyzed paralyzed men through the roof so that Jesus can heal him. And I love what it says here about Jesus. It says, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. And this is where it all starts. That simple sentence, that simple sentence entrenched the Pharisees in a long-term confrontation and conflict with Jesus. Because in their minds, Jesus didn't have the authority to forgive sins. You had to go through their religious system to get the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is delivering it to this man in this group. Now, I've already said Jesus was comfortable, though, with confrontation. And he gets a little confrontational with them. Ask yourself, why was Jesus so comfortable with confrontation? Why was he confrontational? In Luke chapter 11, there's this moment where he speaks to the Pharisees. He says this, and right to their faces, he says, you're crushing people with unbearable religious demands. You never lift a finger to ease their burden. Does that feel like winning friends and influencing them? He tells them exactly what's going on. Here's how they respond. The Pharisees became hostile and tried to provoke him with many questions. They wanted to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Now, Jesus engages them, though. Jesus dialogues with them. Jesus doesn't run away from confrontational people. See, we need to remember, wherever you sit on this continuum, confrontation is a healthy and necessary tool. That's tough if you're on this end of the spectrum. Confrontation is healthy and necessary. And let me qualify it with a word. Healthy confrontation is healthy and necessary. It's what keeps marriages healthy, families healthy, churches healthy, workplace teams healthy. See, conflict or confrontation at its core is really facing an issue and dealing with something that needs to be dealt with. It's not avoiding it. But here's the problem and why I think so many of us have anxiety around confrontation is confrontation can so easily become adversarial so quickly and so often. Uh, We've all been poor confronters before, haven't we? Can can everyone self-admit that maybe you've not handled everything well in a confrontation? Okay, there's three of us that have been poor confronters. (laughs) But we've all experienced poor confrontation. Have Have you ever been confronted and it felt like, ouch? Yeah, I mean, we've all been in those moments and places because often here's how a confrontation unfolds and it's not healthy, but here's what it goes. It turns into me versus you. 
So you see marriages, that confrontation is such a powerful tool to keep a marriage healthy, but so often it becomes you draw lines and it's me versus you. And worse yet, with groups, it becomes us versus them. I grew up in a church that kind of perpetuated that type of conflict in that it was us being the church, the Christians, versus the world. As if we weren't a part of the same humanity. And that adversarial nature doesn't build bridges. It puts up walls, right? But here's a healthy way of looking at it in the way Jesus did. It's you and I versus the problem. How many marriages could change overnight if that issue that does need to be dealt with was not so much you against me. It was you and me addressing the issue, problem solving the issue. You notice, you see the change in that? Everything changes in the tone of that. Everything changes in the way you approach that. So Jesus is comfortable with this confrontation. And that's really something we need to remember because some of us need to become a little bit more comfortable with confrontation. We do. And I say that as someone that sits more on this end of the spectrum. And it could be culture. I'm sure that's part of it. I'm sure it's part of my family culture because my family worked different, not like every family. Every family's got their own unique culture. In my family, confrontation always looked like a conversation. Uh, if you knew my dad, my dad was a, oh, he was an emotive man, warm, but he didn't have high highs or low lows. He just Kind of, it was always a conversation. So it made me feel safe when there was low emotion. Once emotions got engaged, I would be like, whoa, this feels dangerous. Now, I married a woman that, that um, conversa- confrontation wasn't like a conversation. Confrontation was more like a combat situation. <laughs> uh, we laughed about it. We were talking about it all week, uh, this week. It was just different. Hers was more passionate a bit more emotional, a bit more aggressive. I wasn't used to that aggressiveness. So talk about the immaturity of the two of us when we got married. And we had so much, we did this so poorly for so long, it did damage. We did this so poorly for so long. Because every time we came into a confrontational moment, the moment it got emotional, the moment it got a little bit of passionate or aggressive, I disengaged. Or worse, I just gave in. You know, some of you think you're doing the right thing by always giving in, and all you're doing is that's a form of hiding. And over time, you give in enough, you build up resentment. And after you start resenting someone, it's really hard to actually rebuild the relationship because you start to breed contentment. Contempt, you have contempt for someone. And that's very difficult to build the bridge then because a big wall has been built. But I thought I was being the mature one. I'm the one not getting too excited, and I just begin to plug my ears. Meanwhile, I mean, Shelly is doing what she feels is necessary. She's feeling like, we got to deal with this, Jonathan. And so she's ratcheting it up because I'm running away. But the problem was we were married. And all of a sudden I realized I can't get away from her. (laughs) We're in the same area. Proximity meant we either had to get cold with each other and distant, or we had to learn to deal with it. Uh, see, here's the thing though. I thought I was being mature and I couldn't have been more immature. By avoiding it all the time, I wasn't really loving Shelley. I was loving my own need for comfort. 
I wanted, how, how weird is this thinking? I wanted everything to line up the way my family did. Everything to make me feel safe. All the stars got aligned and then we'll resolve this. It's unrealistic, friends. That's not how real life works. We're all different from each other. We need to engage it. So I needed to get a little tougher skin and learn to deal with this. And Shelly, because both of us were trying to control each other in these moments, that's what happens in these things. We start to try to control each other instead of love each other. So we learned a new rhythm. And it's perfect now, and we never have a confrontation, and we never disagree anymore. Because Shelly's in the service, so that's what my... I'm sticking to that, friends, sticking to it. It's great to be a part of a perfect marriage. She's always right. No, I'm sorry. No, no. So we need to become increasingly, and that's our take-home, to become increasingly more comfortable with engaging in healthy confrontation. So let me speak to my fellow avoiders. What conversation should be had? What issue should you be dealing with? What things should you be walking towards? But you're avoiding it. One of our staff values is walk towards the mess. Healthy confrontation to resolve things. Why is that? I don't think some of our staff need that because I think they naturally do that. I need it. I need a reminder, be a big boy, Jonathan walk towards the mess, resolve this. And that's, we're going to talk about how to do it because here's the second point is simply this. Jesus engaged in confrontational people. He didn't avoid them. He engaged with them. I, I, I think before we jump too far into this, just to remember, Jesus loved these guys. He actually loved these Pharisees. And they had positioned their hearts in a way that they were very tough nuts to crack. And Jesus was willing to confront them because he wants to engage them. So back to Luke chapter 5. Here's what happens. Jesus forgives this man of his sins and it says, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law said to themselves, Who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Now, you got to understand, this is their inside voice right now. They're not even, they're saying among themselves, but they've given off a lot of nonverbal skills. Have you ever been in a conflict with someone or a confrontation and you can tell they're not open? These guys are not open, they're not happy. And they're in this place of confrontation. And here's what you notice among difficult, not healthy confrontational people, but difficult confrontational people. You'll notice this. Often it starts out as passive aggressive and when they can't control you, it becomes verbally aggressive. And that's how the trend, you can watch it, you can map it through the Pharisees and the Gospels. It usually, it all starts passive aggressively and eventually goes verbally aggressive and then eventually physically aggressive because they can't control Jesus. Here's the interesting thing though. Jesus responds to them. And you know, they're at conflict because Jesus is, they want the same thing. They want freedom for Israel and Jesus wants freedom for Israel. But Jesus is hanging around with ceremonially unclean people. Dirty people in their estimation, unpowerful people, unclean people. And they see, the Pharisees see, they're the problem with Israel right now. And you're hanging out with the people that are the problem. If they would just get their lives cleaned up, we would be free here. So you can understand why they didn't understand Jesus. And they weren't jiving with his methodologies here. But Jesus responds to them. Jesus says this, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or stand up and walk? 
So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. There is in this narrative, as well as the other confrontations he has with people in the Gospels, there's a pattern to how he handles them all. This is worth writing down in your Jesus Project books because it's a pattern that you and I can employ when we deal with difficult confrontational people in our life. The first thing is you notice always Jesus asks questions. You notice he starts his dialogue with them. He asks them a question. Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to stand up and walk? When you begin to categorize the different types of questions Jesus asks in the New Testament, you realize some of them are rhetorical, some of them are challenging, some of them are inviting feedback. But by asking questions, Jesus postures himself to be open. Isn't it true, if you're in a confrontation with someone and they start with a statement, you always blah, 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 period. You know that's not inviting a conversation. If they start with a question, they do want to hear your perspective, right? Jesus is a master at this. You know, Pastor Keith would teach us over the years. I was on his staff for years here. But he would teach us and probably teach all of us in leadership at this church. He'd always say, come to a meeting, come to a conversation, come to something with a contribution, not a conclusion. I I like it because I think, and I've done the opposite times. I've come with conclusions instead of contribution. But when you come with a contribution... You invite other people to shape and be a part of that conversation. When you come with a conclusion, the conversation is really over before it started. Have you ever been in a confrontation like that? It's not, it's not fun when you're in that type of conversation. So posturing yourself. He asks questions. And I begin to reflect. And I think, too, it's interesting when you see some of the data on this. We don't tend to ask a lot of questions. We determine people's motives without even exploring with questions. We judge them, we lecture them, we project onto them. We do a lot of things, but we don't ask questions. I find it interesting that the greatest communicator ever to walk this earth, he's the son of God. He knows more than you and me. And he asks questions. You know what I think he's modeling? An incredible communication behavior. Asking questions opens people up. You gotta understand, he loves these Pharisees. And he's asking questions to provoke them to change, to help them explore change, to get feedback at times. But there's also this part, and we need to remember, people that are confrontational, you're not gonna wanna hear this if you're at this end of the spectrum. They're a gift to us. Because most, and I'm saying people that are confrontational, I'm not saying about unhealthy confrontation. That's another issue I'll talk to in this next point. But they're a gift to us. Why? Because they're committed to resolving something. They want to deal with something. They may not always do it in a way you feel and experience it well, which we'll get to in a minute. But it's really critical we recognize that there's a gift to the gift that they're a part of our lives too. So unhealthy conflict though unhealthy confrontation, Jesus knows when to ignore them. Ignore them. In Luke chapter 5, he ignores them. I mean, he knows what they're thinking. He responds to it. And what does he do? He just heals the man. Heals the man, and he goes about his ministry day. He leaves. 
He doesn't entertain them. He's not placating to them. He's not trying to just build a bridge overnight. He's not trying to, because they're not prepared to listen to him in this moment. In the previous chapter, Jesus, do you remember when he ticked off all of his neighbors in Nazareth? He showed up. He he read from the book of Isaiah. They got all angry at him. And it says this in the book of Luke. It says, Jesus, seeing that there was no reasoning with them, walks through the crowd, ignores their rage, and goes on his way. You'll see Jesus do this over and over. He, he ignores when those that are confrontational are throwing tantrums or when they begin to speak harshly or when they become abusive in any way. You see this online a lot, don't you? You see, if you ever, they call them trolls online. <laughs> Here's the advice I give to you, if you're in, especially if it's abusive in nature disengage and walk away. Disengage and walk away. I realize it's more complex the tighter your relationships are, and then I'd say see a counselor and help you process that. But disengage and walk away. In general, Jesus does this. He heals the man in Luke chapter 5, and it's interesting. In that very same chapter, he just moves down the road a little bit, and guess who's there to meet him? The Pharisees, his welcoming committee. And they're going to confront him on Sabbath rules, fasting rules, about the people he hangs out with rules. They begin to confront him on a whole bunch of different things. And this tells you a little bit about when it's a difficult confrontational person. It's actually not about the issue. If they can't resolve that issue with you, they'll go after another issue with you. Why? Because it's about controlling you. Difficult, I'm not talking about healthy, difficult confrontational people want to control you. And Jesus won't be controlled. So then that brings to the third thing, because this, again, is how we respond. We ask questions. We need to know when to ignore. When it gets abusive, harsh, or something, you need to disengage, walk away. Here's the third one. Jesus does not get defensive, and this is really hard for me or you or anyone on this side of the continuum. Because when you get defensive, you'll do one of two things. You'll get aggressive in a way that's unhealthy, or you'll turtle, or you'll just give in. And Jesus doesn't please, he's not into people pleasing. So it's interesting when you see how he works. He's not there trying to satisfy their need. He's not there trying to uh, appease the aggressive person or the overly strong dominant person. He's not trying to do that. And by not becoming defensive, this is the beautiful part, it means he remains flexible. He remains flexible. He remains flexible. He remains next. Flexible. There is a number four there that says Jesus was flexible. Yes, he remains flexible. Jesus was flexible. In Matthew 15, it's not recorded in the Gospel of Luke, but in Matthew 15 is a fascinating confrontation. Jesus is on the road, and he gets confronted by a mom. A mom that's looking out for a kid. So even peaceful moms become a little confrontational when they're advocating for their children, don't they? <laughs> yes, they do. Her, da- her, da- her daughter is ill. Her daughter needs to be healed. And she confronts Jesus, heal my daughter. And Jesus says, no. And there's a compli- I, I don't want to get into it all. It's another message for another time. 
But there's a reason why he said no, because he had come to Israel first. She was a Canaanite woman, a Gentile. There's a lots of reasons that it's another message another time. You know what's interesting, though? She persists. And guess what Jesus does in the end? He heals her daughter. What does that mean? Jesus is so beautiful, guys. He stays flexible, even in that confrontational moment. He has a position. She has a position. She says, heal my daughter. He says, no, it's, it's not the right time for that. She asks again. And he does it. Why? Because he's so open to the Holy Spirit leading him that he's ready to give up a position because maybe the, the care of that girl is more important than his position. I say that to say, be careful getting too entrenched. I preach that to myself, you should preach it to yourself. Because you could be tempted with difficult people in your life to see them coming and say, here they come again. <laughs> I know how this is gonna go. And Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is with the difficult people in his life. He's like, this could be different. It doesn't mean you don't handle, ask questions. Know when to ignore when it gets abusive. Know when to ignore. Don't get defensive. And remain open. And all of a sudden on this continuum, we become gifts to each other. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for this church community. Lord, I, I am thankful, God, for the many people that make it up. And Lord, we are imperfect people. God, in need of lots of grace. And Lord, I'm so thankful that you never run out of that. You never run out of grace. You love us. And God, um, for a moment here, God, I just say I'm so thankful for the people that make up this church. The people that uh, may embrace com uh, com confrontation, the, those who may avoid confrontation and everything in between. We're all fearfully and wonderfully made. We're made up of unique cultures and families of origin and workplace influences and personalities. And then we need to make it all work together. And God, this is where we're so thankful for Jesus because you unify us, God. We all love you and we want to be more like you. So friends, if you're more on the avoidance side of this continuum, this might be a good prayer for you to participate with me. God, forgive me for the times that I hide and I'm not committed to resolving or dealing with things that I know need to be resolved and dealt with. God, would you pour your grace in me? And friends, if you're on that side of the continuum, you might have some wounds too. So God, would you heal me? Would you help me, God, to understand how to handle confrontation well, to ask questions, to not get too defensive? That God, when it is a, a unhealthy confrontation, to know how to ignore it and walk away. And God, I pray, Lord, that I would be, remain flexible, though, open to changing where I am in order to build a better relationship, a better community, a better future. And for those of us on the more the embrace confrontational side, maybe this would be a good prayer for you. 
God, forgive me for the moments, God, with people that you've created in my zealousness or just in my, my wiring, God, that maybe I've hurt people that I didn't even mean to hurt. But God, I own that in this moment and I say, God, forgive me. Help me. And you've wired me this way, God. Help me to employ this gift, necessary gift for relational health, community health, in a way that God will be experienced to feel gentle, that will feel uh, caring and loving as I intended to be. And God, I pray for anyone in this room, Lord, that maybe they're in those areas of disorder where, Lord, they, they can't control themselves and they struggle with that, God. Lord, I pray for the courage in each one of them, whether they're on the high avoidance or on the high embrace side, whether they look like a bully or they look so fragile that nobody can look negatively in their direction without crushing them. God, would you give them the courage to seek counseling, to be able to take steps into further health so that they can't, don't need to be afraid of community, nor do they need to dominate community. They can enjoy community together. So God, we entrust our key relationships with you. We entrust the difficult people that have come to our mind through this message with you. And God, we entrust us with you because we know we too can be a difficult person. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time. Thank you.